0: Good morning, happy Mother's Day. Thank you, Bishop, for mothering us all. I like to think of myself as not very anxious for a person with an anxiety disorder. Scripture tells us you you should have laughed more at that. Scripture tells us that we have been given not a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. But if I'm honest, I have to admit that I don't often feel especially powerful or lovely or sane. And if you're honest, I suspect you'll have to admit the same, that that promise, God has given you a spirit of power and love and a sound mind, seems ideal, seems like something you would like to know, but don't exactly experience day to day. W.H. Auden said famously that ours is the age of anxiety, the age of anxiety. And in one of his poems, he describes a scene of anxiety. The lights must never go out. He sees us seated at this bar after work, riddled with anxiety the lights must never go out the music must always play lest we should see where we are lost in a haunted wood children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good that's the poet's reading of our state he wrote that in 1939 if anything i think it's only intensified since then It's true, of course, that life has always been difficult. There have been human beings for hundreds of thousands of years. It's always been hard. And there's always been the fear of death crouching at the door of our awareness. But I suspect that our culture, the one you live in, the one I live in, is eaten up with anxiety in a way very few cultures have ever been. I think we can say a little bit about why that is, although there are of course many, many reasons, some of which I wouldn't even recognize, but I can can name, just kind of off the cuff, I can name a few. One, I think we live with a crushing weight of unprocessed collective guilt and grief because our culture does not grieve well. We do not have rituals of grief. We do not know how to process shared guilt We are so hyper individualized in terms of responsibility. We don't think that we have to answer for what our fathers and their fathers and their fathers did or did not do. And yet our souls know the truth. And so over time we accumulate the weight of unrepented sin and unprocessed guilt and unprocessed grief and our bodies keep that score. Our bodies keep that score. Another reason I think is the speed, the soul deadening speed at which we are forced to live, that the market expects us to be productive, the schedule that we're given requires our presence, and then we end up fitting our real lives around the lives of our jobs, around the expectations of our jobs. And so that generates anxiety because the things that matter most often get the least attention. We don't have energy left to give to our loved ones, to our friends. We don't have time to play because we're too busy. A third reason I think is the inescapable or almost inescapable presence of voices and noises that technology brings to us. Our smartphones, our smartwatches, 24 seven cable, the internet means that there are always people delivering bad news to us, or offering bad advice to us, and we can't really escape it, or it's, it's very difficult to escape. And that, of course, generates anxiety. One of the things our bishop has said to us over and over again is how overpowering and disempowering it is to constantly hear news about catastrophes you can do nothing about. You hear about macro scale catastrophes like the war in Ukraine or, or miniature scale Catastrophes like the sudden death of an infant in a crib. You're powerless. What can you do? And we are awash in that bad news and bad advice. Talking heads, constantly pressing in for our attention. Another reason, I think, is we've pathologized all suffering. So that we spend much of our lives just avoid, avoiding or narcotizing any pain we feel. And for good or bad, and and some of it is good, we have a lot of ways of deadening pain. Thank goodness, If I'm going to have my, my tooth removed, I'm glad that there is a deadener for that pain. And yet there's some pain that should not be deadened. And many of us have lost touch with the wisdom that tells us the difference between the kind of suffering I should bear and the kind of suffering I should try to be freed from. And that creates anxiety. Too much suffering can make us anxious, but not suffering when we should creates an even deeper anxiety. Not being able to feel the pain that is ours to feel. Another, and this is harder to talk about, is the kind of attention we've been conditioned to give the world. Most of us have been conditioned to focus on particulars and to focus on the maps of reality that we can make because those give us the feeling of control. But actually, that's not how humans are meant to live. Your brain is divided because you need two kinds of attention that work together. A left hemisphere kind of attention that can focus on particular things so that you can grasp what you need to grasp physically and metaphorically, but also remain aware of your surroundings. So you need a kind of attention, and this is what your left hemisphere primarily does, that allows you to kind of get stuff done and be in control. But you need that to be married and in communion with a kind of awareness in which you're not apprehending, you're simply attending. You're not grasping, you're simply present. You're not taking control, you're simply receiving in joy or sorrow, as the case might be. And many of us are left hemisphere dominant in the way that we know. This includes the way we read scripture. Many of us have been taught to read scripture where we hyper focus on some particular text or some particular issue in a text and we ignore everything else. One of my teachers talked about a conversion in his life. He was not raised as a Christian. He became a Christian in college thanks to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He started attending a church, doesn't matter what kind of church it was for this sermon, but. He's there for a few years and he's eager. He's coming to the church with his Bible and notebook. You remember that? Do any of you ever go to a church like that? You go to church with a Bible and a notebook and he's highlighting all the passages that the pastor's preaching from and taking notes. And one Sunday, a couple years into this, this experience at this church, he realizes that when he's thumbing through his Bible, you know, the pastor probably said something obscure like, you know, turn to Haggai. And he's like desperately trying to find where in the world is Haggai, right? And as he's thumbing through, he realizes that there are a few pages in his Bible that are highlighted and highlighted and highlighted. And then there are huge swaths of the text that are untouched. And he has this realization. This is a church that gives a lot of attention to a few details, but doesn't give me a sense of the whole, doesn't let me see the whole. And I think that most of us have been conditioned in various ways to live like that with every part of our lives in part because that makes us feel like we've got it. It gives us certainty. It makes us feel that we don't need to bother with the mystery. I know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But your soul, your heart, your deep heart knows better. And so even though you're telling yourself, I've got this, you know better at some level and anxiety is a reminder you're not telling yourself the truth. Today's readings tell us how God sets us free from this anxiety and this timidity. Now that may not seem true, you just heard the gospel reading which opens, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if we are anxious, that hits us like a threat. What do you mean, if I love you? Wait, Lord, do I not love you? Now what do you mean, if I love you, I'll keep your commandments? That doesn't sound very loving. That sounds kind of controlling actually. And many of us, and this is one of the ways in which you can kind of test your own health. Whenever you hear Jesus talking and your response is suspicion, something's diseased. When you hear his if as a condition you must meet to receive his love, something's diseased. When you hear it as anything other than promise, anything other than activation of something in you that you need to be activated, something's diseased. I'll come back to that gospel text at the end. But I wanna turn our attention first to the epistle for the day, which is 1 Peter 3. And I want you to listen to what Peter says and I want you to hear it as a diagnosis and a care plan for our anxiety so that we can live Fearlessly. This letter, 1 Peter, is addressed to the exiles. This is how the letter opens. To the exiles who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Exiles who are meant to be sprinkled with blood. Keep Christianity weird, I say. This is what 1 Peter 3 says right at the heart of the letter. He's talking about the suffering that comes to us and specifically about those who make us suffer, those who wrong us. Do not fear what they fear. Who? Those who are causing you to suffer, those who are accusing you and abusing you and neglecting you and slandering you. Do not fear what they fear. In other words, their violence is rooted in anxiety. You don't have to be anxious. They're afraid, that's why they're violent. You don't have to be violent because you don't have to be afraid. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. We all know, right, what it's like to be intimidated. But did you know that there's a, there's a mystery in that word that is often lost on us. Like we think of intimidation as simply being cowed being overpowered and therefore passive or powerless in the face of the threat. But intimidation is actually something that's intimated into us. To be intimidated technically is to have powerlessness intimated to you, suggested. We tend to think of intimidation as something that comes because you've been overpowered. But actually intimidation comes about because over time, people have suggested and hinted that you should be powerless. And we take that in, we drink the poison a drop at a time, and suddenly find ourselves powerless. We are intimidated. Peter says, don't be, don't be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. In your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. And that's the operative phrase for today. I'm gonna talk about what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Be ready to make your defense. Any of you ever attend a church that was focused on apologetics? Do you know what I mean by apologetics? That like, be ready to give an answer to everybody. right? And there's a way of hearing that that postures us to be argumentative, even combative. right? That we, we've listed out all of the possible skeptical, accusations that can be levied against the authority of scripture or against the effect of Christ. We're gonna tell you all the things those terrible unbelievers say. Here's the list of all the things that atheists and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Catholics believe. And here's, here's here's a way to answer all of that. It's militant, it's controlling, it's rooted in anxiety, it's violent. But notice what Peter actually says, be ready after you've sanctified Christ as Lord in your hearts and do it with gentleness and respect. Actually, a better translation is reverence. The only way in which you can speak about the faith and hope that is in you is when you revere the people who are opposing it. If you ever try to speak about the validity the viability of your faith, without revering the people to whom you're speaking, you will distort the faith. If you speak to win an argument, you've already lost. As a a Christian, if you're speaking to win an argument, you've already lost. You have to speak in a way in which you're not only revering God or the truth in the abstract, you revere those people who don't see it yet. You've gotta do it with gentleness maintain a good conscience, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Not by you, but by how you do not respond. You respond in the way that Jesus did. Peter will talk later about how Christ, when he was struck, did not retaliate, but trusted himself to the wisdom of God. Now, Peter knows something that I think we've forgotten. And that is that our relationship to God is inseparable from our relationship to ourself. Now, I don't want to single anybody out here for abuse or any tradition out for abuse, but many of us will have been taught that the most important thing in our life is our relationship to God. That what matters is the way I relate to God. And that's true, but it's a half-truth. Because coupled with that has been that my relationship to God is the negation of my relationship to myself. That what matters is God, not me. His will, not mine. I should obey him by being false to myself. And without realizing it, because we're dealing in simplicities, we are suggesting something that actually cuts right against the grain of the wisdom of Scripture. Now listen again to what Peter says. Do not fear what they fear, do not be intimidated, but in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord and do all that you do in answering their questions so that you can maintain a good conscience. Do you you hear what he's saying? Not just simply be true to God no matter what they do, but you relate to yourself. Sanctify Christ in your heart first, and then do what you do in such a way that you have a good conscience that you are able to be at peace with yourself in how you're responding to them because you are at peace with God. So there's there's no way to separate them. We all know this passage, I think, Proverbs 4.23. Some of you can probably quote it. Keep your heart with all diligence for, does anybody know the rest of it? From it are the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence. We might not know this passage as well. Psalm 16, seven to nine, if you've got your notebook, write this down. <laughs> Psalm 16, seven, eight and nine. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Now many of us who were raised Pentecostal and charismatic, we have heard a lot about this, right? God gives me counsel, the Spirit tells me. But the next line of the Psalm is, in the night, my heart instructs me. The Lord gives me counsel, my heart instructs me. Not I teach myself, but my heart teaches me as the Lord teaches my heart. That God gives me counsel that works its way into my deep soul, into that unconscious, hidden central core of my being. God works on my spirit and then my spirit works on my mind, my awareness, my conscious awareness. I keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now notice, the Lord is before me and beside me. So as Christians, this is what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. Right? God is before us, the one we focus on, but God is also beside us, the one who helps us keep our focus there. And God is also within us so that we can stay beside the one we're before and stay before the one who's beside us. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices and my body rests secure. Do you hear, do you hear the promise? I mean, this, these words are thousands of years old, but it is touching the nerve of our experience right now. If your body is anxious, if you're not sleeping, if you're not able to be at peace, if your body is keeping the score and telling you that you're losing... It is because you're not at peace with yourself. You're not listening to your heart. God is counseling you, but you're not letting your heart, I'm not letting my heart, instruct me. One of the effects of our world, this modern, industrialized, technologized society in which we live, hyper-individualistic, is that we lose touch with our hearts, and our hearts lose touch with the Spirit. That's our condition, that's our condition. Not that God doesn't still have us, but our hearts have lost confidence in God's having us, and we've lost touch with our hearts being in touch with God. We're not listening to our own hearts, and our hearts are not relying upon God. We've all, of course, heard that passage from Jeremiah. I've already mentioned Jeremiah, you know where I'm going. The heart is desperately wicked, the King James says. Who can know it? And then we jump from that to whatever you do, don't, don't listen to your heart. Whatever you do, don't pay attention to your instincts or your intuition. Instead, listen to your research, which is the video you saw on Facebook yesterday. Or instead, listen to that one chapter from that one book you read that one time. What are you gonna to listen to? Because God has made it so that our hearts are meant to be reliable witnesses to his heart. Blaise Pascal in his Pensées, his kind of meditations, he says, the heart has its reasons, the reason does not know. For the heart is where God is experienced, not the reason. The heart has its reasons, reason does not know, because the heart is where God is experienced. Now, he's not talking about feelings in some superficial sense. He means that there's a deep core to your being. He means exactly what scripture means by it. There's a deep core to your being called the heart, and that's where God can be known intimately. Intimately. But you've got to be in touch with your heart to know what God know, what you know about God and what God knows about you. You've gotta got be in touch with yourself. This is what the psalmist is saying. The Lord gives me counsel in the night my heart instructs me. And this is why Peter says, sanctify Christ in your heart. Now, what is it I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna put, put you to the test here for just a moment. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? Somebody take a risk and get it wrong for everybody else. We've said all of our lives, haven't we? That Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his answer is, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But we end up leaving the, the front and the back of Jesus saying off. This is what it actually says. This is what Jesus actually says. This is Mark 12. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, Jesus answering his opponents well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered and said, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Are you still with me? I'm I'm getting somewhere. Sounds like no one is with me, but it's Mother's Day, so you have to be generous, so I'm gonna gonna keep going. The first commandment is not love your God, love the Lord your God. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love this Lord, the one who is one, the one who is the one of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I think part of, it's not an accident that we've lost that first statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's integrated, he's solitary, there's no other God beside him, but he's also whole. Your Lord is not at odds with himself. God knows God and God is fully aware of God. Purely aware of God. Again, that's what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there's no rivalry between the Father and the Son. God is at peace with himself. God is glad to be God, glad to be the God he is. Hear, O Israel, this Lord is one. Love this Lord with all of yourself. You be at one in yourself loving this God, and you be at one with yourself loving your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear what's being said? You can't relate to God without relating to yourself. If you don't know your own heart, you won't know what God says to you in your heart about you. If you're not able, if I'm not able to let our heart, my heart or your heart instruct us, we won't receive the counsel of the Lord. And our anxiety will build and build and build. And so... I want to come to the other reading for the day. I'll be done in like five minutes. Acts 17. This is the story of Paul on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Paul is passing through Athens. And he's grieved by the idolatry that he sees. Everywhere he turns, everywhere he turns, he sees idols and altars to idols and offerings on those altars. And he's given a chance to talk to the men of the city, to the philosophers. You remember what he says? Athenians, I see that in all things you are very religious. Now, one of the things that's striking, just a side note, is that even though Luke tells us Paul was deeply grieved, he does not tell them that. You know what he does when he talks to them? He doesn't say a word about grief. He says, I see that you are very religious, which is praise. I mean, in our circles in Tulsa, that's an accusation to be religious, but, but it, it was not for Paul. He's not saying, this is, this is praise. You're deeply pious. You're faithful people. And your poets have said that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And while I was there in the city, I saw this altar. Amongst the many, I saw one that caught my attention, and it was an altar to the unknown God. And I have good news I can name him. I can tell you who he is. Now notice what Paul is able to do. Because he's in touch with his heart and his heart is in touch with God, even though he's grieved, he doesn't have to vomit that grief or anxiety onto the people he's speaking with. Even though he knows this is deeply wrong, he can praise what is right without having to name what's wrong. He has no illusions about what's happening in this city. But he also knows the only way to set them free is not by accusation, but by promise. It is the kindness of God that draws us toward repentance. And so even though his heart is broken by the idolatry he sees, what comes out of his mouth is blessing and not curse. And that means he knows his heart and he knows the Lord of his heart. And so he says, I wanna talk to you about this unknown God. So here's what I want you to do in my last three minutes. Stop for just a moment and ask yourself, if you did a tour of your own heart right now, if you went deep inside like Paul went into Athens and you just walked around in the city that is your heart, what altars would you find there? What religion is happening inside of you? And can you find the altar that's at the center, and what is it? Because somewhere in every single one of you and in me, there is a central altar. I mean, there are all kinds of altars, but there's a center altar, and everything depends on what that altar says and what gets done there at the very, very core. And in Athens, it was an altar to an unknown God. Now, back to Peter as we close. What did he say? Don't be afraid. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Find that central altar in your heart and make it Jesus' altar. So, here's what I'm going to do in the last couple of minutes. Look, this is how it ends. You can trust that I'm, I'm finished now. I'll let your anxiety go down. <laughs> you got to think about this. Peter knew Jesus. He knew what Jesus looked like. He knew the sound of Jesus' voice. He argued with Jesus. He literally pulled Jesus aside at one point and told him what he could and couldn't do. Peter knew what it looked like to see Jesus asleep. Peter knew the smell of Jesus. And all of that time, he had no idea. This is the Lord. Not only the Messiah, this is God. This guy right here eating fish with me right now, this is God. I know his mom. I know his family. I know the, the places. And this, this man right here, the one smacking on that fish right now, that man is Yahweh, this is the son of God. How did Peter come to understand that? He had to sanctify Christ as Lord in his heart. And what does that mean? When we think about God, we think about a power that can do anything. All of us have been conditioned to think of God as the one for whom nothing is impossible. God can do whatever God wants to do, which is what we would be if we were God. But that's not who God actually is. Because when God revealed himself in the flesh, the circumcised flesh of this man, Jesus, you know what God's life actually was like? Well, mostly boring for most of the time. So boring that nobody wrote anything about it. That the vast majority of Jesus' life, there's nothing to report on. He was just, you know, being alive. And then when he started doing stuff, it was mostly scandalous and confusing. And then it ended incredibly badly. Everybody deserted him, and he gets tortured outside the city as a rebel, as a persona non grata. That is God. And this is Peter's wisdom. When you recognize that the infinite Almighty power of God in our world looks like everyday, simple, kindness, open to mystery, loving your enemy to the point of martyrdom, what can you fear? You realize this? The moment you recognize that God came among us and mostly didn't do anything, and then when he did do something it didn't work very well and ended up getting him killed, he died at 30 to 33 years old, much younger than I am now, and died mostly alone. When you realize that that's how God's life went, what do you have to fear about your own? What do you, really, what do you have to fear? In the language of the psalm, the Lord is with me. What can anyone do to me? As Paul will say, what can separate us from the love of God? So hear me, if you're anxious, and you are, sanctify this man Jesus, Mary's son and Pilate's victim, this young, challenging Galilean who gets himself killed. Sanctify him and his story as the truth in your heart of hearts. Go into that altar and say, it's not an unknown God, it's Jesus' altar. This table, his body, his blood. And if your heart will do that, not your mind, if your heart will do that, you will not be afraid. Amen.